Dear Elders Williams, Louie, and the executive leadership of the Carolina Conference, as Eric and Anne Marie's children, and as both witnesses and recipients of their continued abuse, manipulation, and double lives, we would like to truly and profoundly thank you for hearing and believing us. You have heard our concerns and our stories. You have sought the truth of the matter by consulting many and varied sources, and you have taken decisive action after being fully informed. We cannot thank you enough. We have all four lived a significant portion of our lives convinced that no one would believe us. We agonized over the possibility that we were wrong and our parents right. You believed us. You also recognized these behaviors and issues as the harmful and anti-biblical practices that they are. Thank you. The last update we received was from Christopher Beeson after our parents' meeting with you, stating, they both came and met with the officers. They are prayerfully considering their options. Carolina Conference can't share anymore. When we pressed for further information, Christopher shared that they are still employed and that there was nothing more he could share. We are writing in unity, respectfully challenging the cessation of communication. Our parents' dysfunctional cycle of living and their sins have been of a chronic and public nature, affecting us, their children, as well as their extended family, friends, and church members. They have been called into question personally, with witnesses, and now in front of your higher authority and responsibility. As we have been the witnesses and recipients of the largest portion of their abuse, their path to healing, restitution, and reconciliation is incomplete without our involvement. The word restitution is incongruent with a process that excludes their victims. More simply, repentance is impossible if we aren't a part of their apology. In a more intangible sense, their shocking behavior towards us and others has been on their terms, and they have subsequently controlled the narrative of these events. They should not have that same control in this process of restoration, or we and the witnesses of their abuse will always have some doubt of their sincerity in the matter. Because of our parents' consistent and recent behavior, it is unacceptable that we, their adult children and victims of their abuse, be cut off in their time of intervention. It is imperative that we receive regular and detailed reports of how they are taking action to right the wrongs that they have committed. Please, compel Eric and Anne Marie to waive their decision to end communication to us, their children, outside of your office. In pursuit of this end, and to prevent the continued maleficent influence of their hypocrisy upon the Seventh-day Adventist Church, both in Arden and in the Carolinas at large, we have composed a letter detailing their unapologetic divergence from the truth, from the Bible, and from basic human decency. We are prepared to share this letter with the public to safeguard and protect God's children from their unchristlike behavior and continued hurt. We will distribute this letter broadly on December 6, 2019, if we do not receive the assurance of consistent communication informing us of their situation and actions. This is not in a spirit of vengeance or malintent, but in a prayerful and sincere desire 
to protect others from the sins of our parents. If they are not willing to be accountable to the people they have hurt, their accountability must be held in public view. It is our hope that through your mediation that they will be willing to surrender their control and narrative, and in so doing, surrender their public pride. We want nothing more than a biblical restoration of our family, but recognize that repentance and reformation are necessary steps in this process, a process which they are responsible for. We thank you again for your continued prayers and efforts towards justice. We respectfully and anxiously await your communication and inclusion in our parents' journey. In Christ, Michael, Evan, Aaron, and Ari Bates. This is Girl Found, a Grafting Podcast. This wasn't our first step in righting wrongs. This process began when each of us children reached out to the regional leadership of the Adventist Church and voiced our concerns about the abuse, the manipulation, and the isolation. They listened attentively, in turn, to each of our stories. I am so deeply sorry that this was your experience, the president of the conference told me. I've also spoken to your siblings, and even with your grandmother, and they've expressed similar concerns and heartbreaking stories. We're going to arrange a meeting with Eric and get to the bottom of this. Dad, Eric, and the leadership of the conference met for lunch. Anne-Marie was asked not to come, and the leadership told us that was to protect the purpose of the meeting from name-calling and insults. This encouraged me that they were aware of the dynamics of my family. The history I have given you here, in this story, was laid out to Eric, who sat silently. When Dad finished, and the leaders had asked follow-up questions, which he answered, Eric stood up and left, never saying a word. Weeks passed, and the sympathetic tone of the conference changed. We heard nothing. It was into this backdrop that we sent that letter. This was a pivotal moment in my growth. Up until this point, I believed that my freedom was only worth it if I won freedom for everyone else. But my freedom was not a debt. It was a right. I did not owe the world reciprocity for something that I had fought for. Eric and Anne-Marie kept their jobs. I lost the last glimmer of respect I held for the morality of the Adventist Church. And instead, I received this email from the president of the conference. I am truly disappointed in the manner by which you intend to take this matter to the next level of an attack mode. Utilizing social media by anyone as a weapon or threatening the mass communication of grievances against one another in a family is, in my estimation, vitriolic in its intent. In my humble opinion, this may, in actuality, backfire on you by revealing a vindictive motivation and highlighting a major character flaw in your action. You are each adult children now, 
You certainly have the right and ability to do whatever you choose to. However, I urge caution and rethinking regarding your approach. I share in your distress, as well as the distress of your mom and dad, with the unfortunate circumstances that the enemy of mankind has impacted against your family. My prayer is, and has been, that by God's grace, a healing process can and will take place, even if it is over an extended period of time with all the resources of help within our reach, to mend all the past wounds and restore the Bates family to the beautiful harmony that a loving Heavenly Father longs to see. The perfect little family image that was so carefully crafted in our childhood would never change. And God was no longer considered a figure of justice, but of saving face. There's more to this story, so keep listening through this short break. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Unclockable. Unclockable makes feel-good, gender-affirmative products for femmes by femmes. They exist to help you be you and wear what you want. If you haven't seen it for yourself, their tuck kit is euphoric. With Unclockable, your tuck is swim-proof and gym-proof and will never show a panty line, so you can securely express yourself, live your life, and keep your parts private. Whether you're new to tucking or have been doing it for some time, Unclockable is something to try out. Right now, you can get a home try-on kit for just $12.95, and U.S. shipping is included. Listeners of this podcast can get 10% off their first order. Just go to unclockable.com forward slash girl found, or use the code girl found at checkout. Unclockable. Be you. When you're seen, good things happen. Unclockable's tuck kit has been life-changing for me. I wouldn't be able to express myself with the level of confidence, bravery, or just feel damn hot without the tuck kit. It never slips, it's medical-grade adhesive, and once it's on, it's on. I've been able to go to the beach, wear leggings confidently, and all kinds of other affirming euphoric clothing without ever having to worry about slippage, or anything else distasteful that might leave me less than confident. It's worth it. If you tuck, you should be using Unclockable's Tuck Kit. Welcome back to Girl Found. Today I interview Elena Matthews, opera performing artist, voice and piano teacher, child assault survivor, and cult survivor. Elena spent the first 21 years of her life in the Seventh-day Adventist Church before leaving and beginning the next chapter of her life. Well, I grew up Seventh-day Adventist in actually a fifth-generation Seventh-day Adventist home. Um, We were a pretty conservative Adventist home, but still within the mainline SDA church. Um, Mm -hmm. Kind of bordering a little bit on um, wanting to be self-supporting-ish, but not quite there. Um, Still mainline. Um, Mm -hmm. 
and I grew up in actually several different states, Montana, Texas, and Colorado, um, so moved okay. around a lot. Um, yeah, and so I grew up really, really good Adventist. Um, mm. My entire family is Seventh-day Adventist. Um, I actually can't think of anybody who is not Adventist except for me now. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, Um and also just a very abusive home. Um, so it was a pretty intense childhood, to say the least. Sure. I believe that. Yep. Yep. I left when I was uh, 21. And mm-hmm. yeah, that's been quite the journey. <laughs> so my uh, gotcha. family actually is pretty much from the Pacific Northwest. Um, but they, I, for some reason, I didn't actually grow up on the Pacific Northwest, but that's really where they're from. My parents grew up in like Oregon, um, Washington and Idaho. Um, my father's side of the family is heavily from Idaho because actually before they were Adventists, they were Mormon. Um, oh, wow. Like actually Brigham Young, Mormon. He's my grandfather. <laughs> oh. Yes. Oh, wow. <laughs> yes. What What a story. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, wow. yeah, the cold stuff has uh, been strong for a long time. It's funny because my parents are the first generation of Adventists on both sides of their family. Um, but my, um, my biological father's dad, um, was actually very new age and was involved in like a lot of the, um, cults surrounding the Haley Bot comet. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. So it seems that there's at least, I, I feel like there might be some kind of draw towards cults. And any kind of like high control, high manipulation environment like that, um, maybe genetically, maybe environmentally, but I feel like it gets passed on. Oh, yeah, for sure. It does. So tell me a little bit about your childhood growing up in um, just in Adventism, but also in general. Um, what was childhood like for you? Um. It was very much not great. <laughs> um, so on the outside, my family was like a very, very good, strict Avenist family. Um, and on the inside, they were hiding a lot of very severe abuse. Um, mm. And I was actually homeschooled all the way through sixth grade, and that hid a lot of abuse. There's no regulation, so it was very easy for them to fly under the radar. I was super isolated. Um, I didn't see a doctor or a dentist from the ages of 5 to 12. Um, And my father even works in the medical field. Um, We were upper middle class I mean, at least middle class, if not upper middle class. Um, but I still grew up um, with neglect, um, mm-hmm. with a very abusive mother, um, like mommy dearest type abusive. <laughs> mm. um, and I was just stuck with her 24-7. Um, and she didn't actually educate me. All she did was order textbooks. And that was 
all she did. <laughs> mm-hmm. I had to mm-hmm. sort of teach myself. Um, and it's honestly a wonder I know anything. <laughs> My little brother is autistic and he did not learn how to read until he was 10 because of the neglect. Um, and he didn't get diagnosed until age 12. Um, and at about that time um, is when, well, I was finally put into school at age 12 um, it, for seventh grade. And it was about that time that they were figuring out some of his stuff. Um, because when you have a 10 year old that can't read, people start to notice. <laughs> um, so it was getting harder and harder for them to hide some stuff. But for a long time, it was very easy. And it, it was kind of hard because I was kind of expected to educate him because not only is he, uh, does he have autism, but he also has a lot of, he was diagnosed with several different learning disabilities. And then I, as a child, was kind of expected to teach him, um, which is a very unfair burden to place on any child for any sibling, but especially one with learning disabilities. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So it was a lot. Um, I was having to educate myself, try to educate my brother, um, and also deal with 24-7 abuse. And not only was my mother an extremely abusive mother, um, there was very high levels of abuse going on in my family. Um, Like, all the way, all the way up to um, familial trafficking um, and incest. And my family was friends with other Avenus families with the same kind of issues going on in their home. And we would, they would just abuse each other's kids um, and they never got caught. And it was all under the guise of this wonderful, perfect Avenus family. Mm. Yeah. So it was a pretty chaotic and terrifying childhood, but we had to look very good on the outside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. External appearances are everything. So this continued uh, the entire time you were in Texas. Did it continue when you moved away? Well, the abuse, um, of course, didn't stop. Um, I got put into an Avenus grade school in seventh grade. Um, and then from then on was no longer homeschooled. Um, we moved to Colorado and Colorado has slightly stricter homeschool laws and my parents couldn't get away with it. And plus with my brother and his, it becoming more obvious that he was being neglected, it was getting harder for them to hide some things, um, with that. So, um, ended up going to school. And from then on, I was in the Avenue school system until college. Um, but it was never expected that I would college for real. It was just every single woman in my family had only gone to Avenue college for a semester or maybe a semester and a half at most, and then found their husband mm. dropped out and got married. And of course that was, expected that the, it that's what I would do. Never mind that I loved school. Never mind that I always had very strong educational goals. That didn't matter. Um, so when I kind of fucked against that system, um, didn't go to Avenist College, my family was against me and fought me at every turn. Um, so I didn't go to Avenist College. Um, and that's it. College is when I ended up leaving. 
even as an Adventist who grew up in like hyper conservative Adventism, like I was involved in the Restoration International group and I, like all of this stuff, this is kind of a, a a niche horror story within Adventism that I'm not sure I've heard before. At, at what age did you start to begin to realize that things were not normal for your family um, versus the outside world, but also was that at the same time you realized that things weren't normal even within the church, or did that come at a different time? You know, none of that started really happening until I was away at college and in my early 20s. So I left Adventism when I was 21, and it was about the same time that I realized that things were not right with my family um because the way that my family treated me as i left was so extreme that people noticed that and were like this is not normal (laughs) Mm. and thankfully i was able to get into therapy like pretty early on in that journey like within six months after i left adventism um And I started out therapy like, oh, no, my childhood was perfect. What are you talking about? I don't have any problems. My childhood was great. Uh, total lie of denial. I mean, not not an intentional lie. I just, you know, had created a very protective system to help me get through that awful childhood. And it took a while to kind of get through those um, defenses. Um Sure. But I had to in order to stay safe from my family because they're a very dangerous family. Um, so it was really kind of all about the same time that I started um, having those realizations. I knew when I went to, when I got outside of my Adventist bubble by going to non-Adventist, um, a non-Adventist university, I obviously knew that I was different because I was Adventist. I was in the remnant church, um, mm. all of that stuff. But I thought, I definitely felt superior to everyone because that's how I had been raised to believe. So I didn't view it as a bad thing until I had, I actually had a teacher who started asking me very pointed questions that really got me thinking. And it just kind of snowballed from there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it all just came tumbling down. So being different was a badge of honor. Yes. Uh, because if people noticed that you were different, then people would ask you about it and you would have a chance to to be a witness. Yes, exactly. So, um, well, first, out of curiosity, which university did you go to and how did that come about? Um, so I have two degrees from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. And the funny thing about that is I went to um, UNL because Union College is in Lincoln, Nebraska. Um, so my parents' next best thing to going to an Adventist college was being near one. <laughs> so if I didn't go to an Adventist college, at least I could still be in the same um, city as one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... Um, And I had gone to Adventist Academy and in that particular academy in Colorado, since Union College was the closest um, Adventist college, um, that's where a lot of my friends ended up going. So when I first moved to Lincoln, I got an Adventist roommate and it was right across the street from Union College's campus. 
Um, so I spent more of my time at the beginning at Union College than I did my own university because I was supposed to find a good Avenus man and marry him <laughs> and not <laughs> influenced by the evil university. <laughs> wow. Um, talk to me about that transition for you from spending all your time at Union and um, you know, well, tell me about the shift of priorities for you from union to your other school, basically. Like, how'd that shift of priorities happen? Well, my first year, it definitely was difficult because my parents did not approve of me going to college. They didn't approve of me getting a higher education. Um, so they didn't want to make it easy for me. So I had to work very hard to support myself even though I was this young college student and going to school full-time and you know I was a music major and when you're a music major you have so many things that are going on outside of like just being in a classroom um it's a lot harder I think as a music major to like have a job because you're going to rehearsals um you have to do a lot of practicing there's just so many things that are outside of those classroom hours Mm -hmm. Um, so I basically was not sleeping at all. <laughs> it was extremely difficult. I was having breakdowns all the time because I was so worried about not making enough money and being homeless. I wasn't being able to focus much on schoolwork. Um, I knew that that was not sustainable. Um, so even the time that I was spending at Union College, I was basically just breaking down to my friends all the time because I was under such a high amount of stress. Mm. Um, and it just wasn't sustainable. So, and also I didn't get along with my roommate. <laughs> um, no, no. Yeah. So it ended up just not working. So it ended up being that I had to move into a different apartment and it was much closer to UNL's campus. And I ended up getting a church job at a not Adventist church, which is a very common thing for musicians to do um, where you will get hired by a church um, and then that's how you can make some extra money. Um, so I started being exposed to a church that wasn't an Adventist church and didn't have to work quite as much and started spending, all, and I wasn't near Union College anymore. My new apartment was near my actual university and I got to spend a lot more time on my actual schoolwork. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and a lot less time working because my church job um, gave me enough money. So that helped a lot. Um, and then once I was able to really integrate into the university and be there a lot more than having to worry about being at Union College all the time, um, that's kind of when I was able to see outside of my bubble more and more. How did those questions first get raised for you? So um, I had a teacher who... So I actually am an opera singer, and in those very early days, um, I really wanted very much to audition for the operas that um, my university did, but I couldn't do them because the they had two performances, and one of them was on Friday night, it was Sabbath. Mm. Um, so I wouldn't audition. And one of my, my voice teacher at the time was like, 
why in the world are you not auditioning for these operas? <laughs> like, what is going on? And so I told her, and I thought that it was an opportunity to witness, of course. <laughs> um, also, little did I know that this teacher had spent some time living in Loma Linda, California, so she knew all about Avenus. Um, <laughs> and so she didn't, I don't think she knew that I was an Avenist yet, um, but as soon as she found out, she knew exactly what she was dealing with. Uh-huh. <laughs> um so she asked me like why I wasn't auditioning for the operas and so I, I told her all about the Sabbath and I gave her all of my scripted responses and she said why is the Sabbath so important to you and again I just the scripted stuff that we're taught and she said no I, I need you to tell me really why is it so important for you to keep the Sabbath and I remember I just started crying and I was like, because I'm not going to go to heaven if I don't keep the Sabbath, I'm just going to be like lost forever. Um, and she was like, I think, I think you need to, I think you need to maybe do some studying and find out if that's actually true. Wow. Yeah. And that's what got me started down, down that path. Um, and I am a big researcher. And once I find something that I am very interested in, I will research it to death. And that's kind of how it ended up being with Adventism. I found out how it basically was all a hoax. <laughs> and honestly, it's not that hard to figure that out. I mean, mm -hmm. the resources are there. I mean, with the internet, it, it really doesn't take that long to figure it out. It's hard because of all the brainwashing and all the indoctrination, but the resources are there. And um, I can remember like that, that Christmas when I went home, um, you know, being, being a uh, vocal performance major, we had just done a Christmas concert where we were singing a bunch of Christmas carols. And then I got home and went to my Adventist and we were singing the same Christmas carols, but they had different words in the Avenist hymnal. And I was like, why does this have different words? Um, and then I looked that up and figured out, oh, well, early Avenists didn't actually believe in the Trinity and Ellen White, like that's all been kind of covered up. And um, so they had to change these words to take out the Trinity and like just things like that. Um, and then, of course, finding out a lot about Ellen White's plagiarism, um, it was just everything. And I researched all of it because I had kind of an insatiable need to do that. Um, and it just, I once you see it, you can't really unsee it. <laughs> um, so that started happening in the fall. And by February, I was done. Wow. So for you, it was mainly about the the history of the church like the authenticity of the church being called into question i don't think i could have handled um a lot of i couldn't have handled all of it at once um so it was really a lot about the history and the doctrines at first um sure and then a lot of like the the cult aspects as far as like the psychological control and all of that mm -hmm. stuff I had to process later. And I actually saw that I think more as I um, started to leave and saw the mm -hmm. responses to me leaving and the fallout from that. Mm -hmm. Like it was, it was kind of, you, you it was kind of an escape. <laughs> it was very hard to detangle from all that. Oh, absolutely. 
Yeah. So how did you go from, wow, the history of this church isn't what it seems to, oh, wow, these beliefs aren't what the Bible teaches? Because was it that way? Did did yeah. you first? Um, it was kind of all wrapped up together. That that was a whole process that I did. Those two things were the same. Um, and I will be honest, like at the very beginning, um, I first when I first left Adventism. So this was quite a journey. I actually became a evangelical Christian for a while, and then it was a whole journey to get out of that. <laughs> sure. So, you know, and sometimes it's hard because like being an evangelical Christianity added to my religious trauma, like I already had a ton of it. And then that just gave me more. And sometimes I feel really upset that that's what the journey was. But I think it kind of had to be because I don't think I could have handled it all at once. It just, I think it needed to be that way, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. but the brainwashing is so deep. I don't think I could have handled going straight from um, being a really intense conservative Adventist to like where I am now, where I consider myself to be just non-religious. Mm-hmm. Um, it had to be this process. Sure. So when you first went through this process, how did? at what point did you realize that your family needed to know? And how did that happen? I was terrified for them to know and I didn't want them to know. Um, because I knew, I knew that the repercussions from that would be really bad. Um, my family, even though they did not support me going to college, they were helping me out a little bit financially. I knew that that was all going to be taken away if if they found out that I had left. Um, I knew I likely was going to have to drop out of school and that did, I did have to drop out. I ended up I, it's, it's fine. It, the spoiler, uh, I ended up going back, I finished and I have a master's degree now. So it ended up being okay, but I did have to drop out, um, for a little while. Um, so I knew that was going to happen. I knew that it was, they were going to be extremely angry. I was terrified of them because they're, like I've said, they're a very dangerous and very abusive family. Um, Mm -hmm. so I didn't, I didn't want them to know, and I didn't want to tell them they kind of figured it out. Um, Mm -hmm. So I didn't tell them of my own, (laughs) of my own free will. What happened was, um, I'm not even quite sure how they figured, it was my mom that figured it out. Um, And there was one Sabbath morning um, and I wasn't going to church. So I was sleeping (laughs) because it was a Saturday morning. And she called me like 13 times in that morning while I was sleeping. And so when I woke up, I saw that I had 13 missed calls from her and I was like, oh my goodness. So I called her back and she was like, where are you? I've been like trying to get a hold of you. Super worried about you. I did have an aunt and uncle that lived um, in Lincoln. They're like, they don't know where you are. Why aren't you in church? It's fine. Don't worry. I'm fine. I was just sleeping. Um, and she's like, why aren't you going to church? Blah, 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 blah. And I was like, um, I'm going to go to church tonight, which was true because I started going to a non-Avenist church and they had a Saturday night service. Um, Mm -hmm. and she was like, what, what do you mean? That's not on Sabbath. That's after sundown. You can't go to church. Like that's not (laughs) And I all, I probably should have known better, but all I said was like, well, does it matter really when you go to church? Is there ever a wrong time to go to church? 
<laughs> as soon as I said that, she knew. Um, and she immediately just went into a tirade, like a total mm. rage. Um, she's like, you left the Seventh-day Adventist church, didn't you? I knew that you were leaving. I knew that this would happen if we let you go to a non-Adventist university. Everyone warned me that this was going to happen, but we trusted you. We trusted you that you'd be able to handle going to a non-Adventist college and stay Adventist. And now you've let us all down and you're the biggest disappointment. And like, just like this whole big thing about how it was a horrible disappointment, how I had let, I'd broken her trust and just like this whole big thing. And then I think she ended up hanging up on me. Um, and so then I was crying and terrified and it was a whole thing. So that's how, that's how it came out to my family. <laughs> hmm. Wow. Um, it sounds like during this process, you had still a little bit of a support system since you were going to a different church at that time. Yes. I, Thankfully, um, here in Lincoln, there it is actually quite, well, thankfully and not thankfully, because right now it's a little bit harder because there are not so many former Adventists that are non-religious, but there are, there is quite a group of former Adventists that are Christians. Um, and I did find, I found them and they did help me through all of that time. And I don't think I could have gotten through it when, um, I was first leaving and with all the repercussions with my family, I don't think I could have gotten through all of that without them. So mm. I'm glad that I had them at the time. Yeah. How did you go from that, um, go from not Adventist, but evangelically involved to non-religious? How did that process go for you? Um, so that has been a process. I think the very first thing for me um, was Mm, probably about two years after I left Adventism, um, when I figured out how evangelicals traditionally treat their kids, um, and especially as a child abuse survivor, I was really angry and very hurt to figure that, that stuff out. Um, and it was very hard for me to accept, um, so that was, I guess, my first red flag and like all of their doctrines that they have around like justifying, like basically abusing their kids um, and how they view their children as like these horrible sinners that they basically have to beat to save from hell. Um, I was mm -hmm. horrified by that as a child abuse survivor. Um, mm -hmm. And I just, that was my first, that was my first red flag. Um, and but then I found a bunch of Christians that like, cause there is a gentle parenting part of Christianity that, and I was like, okay, well you can still be a Christian and not be this way. Um, so that was like, okay, but then things just kept getting worse and worse. And by the 2016 election, I was pretty much done, <laughs> which I think for a lot of people, that was a big turning point. Um, okay especially at the church that I was attending when I saw how they all supported Trump. And again, especially as a uh, survival survivor of um, child sexual abuse and seeing how they were totally okay with the disgusting things that Trump does and says. And um, especially when uh, those tapes came out about all the, him making fun of um, 
sexual assault and how they were just okay with that, that, that was really hard for Mm me. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And it just kind of, from there, it's like kind of just built up. I of course never was okay with, um, how they treat the LGBTQ community. And that's another part of the journey, like figuring out that I'm not straight, which was something that wasn't Mm -hmm. safe for me to figure out when I was an evangelical. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, having to sit through all those sermons at my evangelical church talking about how uh, homosexuality is this horrible sin. um, I still think about those sermons. Um, And this goes along with some of the stuff that uh, was still religious trauma that I encountered when I was an evangelical Christian. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So while leaving Adventism, I think was, it was a much quicker process, even though I was very heavily indoctrinated, um, leaving Christianity as a whole kind of took a, a few, it was like a slower burn over a few more years. If that makes sense. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, did were you able to keep some semblance of community as you left religion itself? Um, yes, because of my connections through uh, the university, and especially since I went back and got my master's degree, um, and because I have like a really good community um, as a musician. Um, all of those connections are good, um, but I did lose a lot of my community. Um, so my, my community just looks different now, um, and there's a lot of different people, and I don't have very many people that have stayed with me through this whole process. I have only a couple of friends that have kind of uh, been with me from when I started leaving Adventism and are still my friends now. Um, mm-hmm. So that part is sad, but... So my community, I guess, has shifted through the years. Um, I am no contact with my family. Um, So there is that. I do have my same therapist that I've been seeing for years, and she's wonderful and has supported me through all the things. Wow, (laughs) that's amazing. Yeah, it is, and it's been huge. Hmm. I wanted to ask you about your experience with abuse combined with religion as as a child abuse survivor myself um it's often hard for me to see which came first the chicken or the egg and i wanted to ask you your opinion on it um what do you think influenced what um do you think that the um toxic high control religious experience led to um, child abuse, or do you think that the abuse, um, made high control, high manipulation religion appealing? You know, that's, that is a really, uh, difficult thing to figure out. I know that in my family, both of those things were generational, like for many, many, many generations. Like I, I don't know I don't know a time when there wasn't high control religion because it pretty much goes as far back as like, I can really trace my family. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what it was like 
before they came over to the United States. <laughs> um, you know, my European ancestry, I don't know what kind of religion they were, and I don't know what was going on, you know, in their families. But I know at least from the point that my family was in the United States, they were child abusers, and they were in high control religion. So I don't know which came first. Um, I know that they, I know that um, in religion, I think it's very common to have child abuse and even very severe child abuse, like what happened in my case, um, because the toxic system, you know, feeds that other system, they kind of feed off each other. So I'm not sure if it's really like a question of which came first, or if it can, or I don't know, at least in my case, I'm not sure if we, I can really answer that. I just know that the two systems, um, each other and one hid the other, you know, and vice mm. versa. Mm -hmm. Um, do you think that the Adventist church as a whole, um, its policies, its leaders, uh, its culture, do you think that it encouraged and fed, uh, the abusive systems within your family? Oh, absolutely. No question about it. No question about it. It was way too easy for them to be who they are in the Adventist church. Um, having to look like the perfect Adventist family in the remnant church um, fed off of it. And even now, all of their Adventist family or uh, Adventist friends, because I've been very vocal about who my parents are, nobody from <laughs> nobody who knew me from when I was an Adventist believes me. Um, they all believe my family. So I think that's very telling. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And even, so this gets into another, even when I was outside of my family, but going to Adventist academies, I was sexually assaulted. I went to two different Adventist academies and I was sexually assaulted in both of them. Um, so even though the academies were actually safer than my home, I was still being abused there. And I, it's saying something that I, you know, I experienced sexual assault in both of these academies and they were still safer than my home. Um, mm. But I have since brought this up to their respective conferences about what happened. And they pretty much, and especially in one instance, a teacher instigated it. Both of the, both of the, um, both of the people were students, but in one instance, it was a teacher who instigated the student to do it. And he's a pastor of an Adventist church now. And I let that church know. And I let that conference know they did nothing. He still is a pastor. Um, the principal at the time, like didn't even, didn't even respond to me. The conferences didn't do anything about it. Like nobody did anything. They didn't really care. <laughs> hmm. Um, and in fact, they kind of gaslit me and did all of the toxic, abusive things that, you know, the same stuff that my family has done when I tried to talk about before I cut contact, when I tried to talk about some of the abuse. So it was like the same thing, you know, the same system, mm -hmm. same, same scripts. <laughs> so, yes, um, how the Adventist Church is set up and all of that is I mean, it is abuse. It's the same. It's the same system as an abusive family. Hmm. This is kind of a leading question, but uh, because I already know how you will agree, but I'm wondering if you have some insight on it. Uh, do you think the things that made 
your parents, that teacher, the individuals you encountered in academy, and and any other individuals within your experience of Adventism, do you think that the things that made them abusers made them good Adventists? <laughs> that is a very good question. <laughs> I mean, yeah, absolutely. Um, because to be a good Adventist, you really have to you really have to be uh, hiding a lot of stuff and you have to be, you can't be authentic. You cannot be authentic because you have to present this perfect image because, you know, in Adventism, they teach that when the close of probation happens, you're going to have to be able to stand before a holy God without a mediator. And so at that time you have to be perfect. So they are under this immense pressure to be perfect or to be getting closer and closer to perfection so that when the end times happen, they will be able to stand before God as perfect human beings. Um, and I think in order to do that, they have to, cause nobody can be perfect. They have to lie to themselves. And Adventism was based on a lie. The whole premise was to, you know, cover up the William Miller's date setting. So, Yes, and abuse is based on a lie. And when you're hiding abuse, it's all about lies. So yeah, in order to be a good Adventist, you have to lie to yourself. You have to lie to everyone around you. And you have to do those same things to hide abuse. Hmm. Where do you see yourself now in relation to the church? And by that, I mean, best case scenario, what would you like to see happen now to the Adventist church and how are, how are you making that happen? When I first left Adventism, I was very dead set on, Oh, I'm going to be a huge part of just like bringing the out. <laughs> like I'm going to get all of these people out. Like once everybody sees what I can see now, of course they're going to leave. But of course that didn't happen. Um, <laughs> so I've had to kind of let go of a lot of expectations, realize that, um, no matter how carefully I word things or, you know, how much research I show people, there are people that are just not ever going to get it. Um, and so I've kind of had to let a lot of that go. I don't think, I know that there's a lot of people that do see the problems within Adventism and then they stay Adventist because they try to change the church from the inside. I don't think that's really possible because I think, like I said, like Adventism was based on a lie. Its whole premise was based on control and manipulation. I don't think there's really anything that you can do to save it, I guess. Um, so Adventism would have to cease to be Adventism if it was ever going to be healthy. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, I know that that's not anything that I have control over. So I've kind of had to let a lot of that go and just tell my story and hope that it'll resonate with the right people and the people that are ready to hear it. Um, but as the Adventist church as a system, as much as I would like to see it, um, I would love to see it fall. Unfortunately, cults exist and there are many of them. And I don't think that it's going to, you know, just be stopped, but I can hopefully tell my story and it can help some individuals. 
and you're telling your story really well. Um, it, it got to me um, on TikTok. Um, and I think that it's really cool that that having relinquished the feeling of duty, which I think is remnant of our experiences, um, relinquishing that duty to change things, I think that that opens up a whole new world of possibility of educating people who wouldn't have known otherwise. And I think that the more that we are able to educate the general public about just how dangerous the system of Adventism is, um, I think that the culture changes because it goes from a tolerance of, oh, they're just like weird Baptists to, oh, this is a church on par with Jehovah's Witnesses and and Mormons that limits people's individuality, that encourages abuse, that creates systems of abuse. I think it's really cool that you're doing that. Thank you. And yeah, I, I agree with you. It is really important that people see that. And I think that's one thing the Adventist church is really, really good at. They're really good at convincing everybody else that they are just this benign system with a few quirks. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that that started, there's actually a history of that um, in the evangelical world. Walter Martin was um, kind of the voice on what is a cult. So he talked about Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, of course, is the big ones. When it came to Adventists, at first he did also lump the Adventist church in with Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. But the Adventists were so angry about that and they started talking to him and they basically lied to him about what Adventism really teaches and they convinced him <laughs> that mm-hmm. Adventism was not a cult. And I think because he was such an influential voice. Um, and he, he went back on that. He said there that they were not a cult. And I think that that has really influenced how the world has viewed Adventism since then. Um, and, you know, they've been very good at keeping up that pretense since then. And Again, that's one thing that makes them really, really good at what they do. And it's a thing that makes abusers, a really good abuser, a really good abuser. You hide all the bad stuff and have an image that you present to the world. And work constantly behind the scenes to make sure that that image is always seen and and the, the truth is always managed and packaged up. Yes. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for jumping on and talking with me. Um, It's crazy to talk with someone who has such a similar experience with me from a totally different side of the country and has arrived at the same conclusions. And I think that that speaks volumes. Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me. And I'm really glad that we got to talk and I'm really trying to like increase my um, community of Adventists who are not like very intense evangelical Christians. So <laughs> I'm really glad to have really glad to have met you. And so thank you for reaching out to me.